and block he thinks he may be president someday. Oh, Mr. Block, you were born by mistake. You take the cake. You make me ache. Tie a rock on your block and then jump in the blue lake. Kindly do that for liberty's sake. (laughs) Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dave. Thanks for joining Bob and I for our podcast, Thriving in Dystopia. And even though we always try and be professionals, sometimes we swear. So just know that going in. Oh boy, oh boy. We got a special one coming at you. I'm just going to start us off, Bob, by introducing the guest coming right out, right, right out from you, right from Golden, Colorado. Uh, we got one of the long... The longest friends in our circle, Dan Cantrick today. And I've known Dan since sixth grade. And we've been tight, you know, well over 20 years. And it's just going to be so great to have him on the show. And, you know, I felt like it's hard to talk about all the accolades that Dan has done. But one of the things that Dan did that has affected me more than most is he came up with some of the best bumper stickers that you could ever imagine. Um, And I'm going to share my top three that he came up with. I think this was probably like in 2014 when Dan was taking a eco, uh, like eco activist class at Naropa. And they are the first one is have your drink on the rocks, climb a mountain. And the next one that really spoke to me was less roads, more frogs. And the one that I quote literally every day of my life is flashlights darken everything around them. So anyways, Dan, I don't want to talk about all your accolades, but welcome to the show. Welcome to Thriving, Danny. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here um, (laughs) and uh, be talking to the two of you. I love the podcast and um, yeah, I'm excited for this. And I want to make a little, little amendment to one of those bumper stickers. There's two versions <laughs> of the, oh. for the uh, uh, one that you mentioned about frogs because fro- frog and toad, you know, they're, they're very similar. So you can say uh, less roads, more toads. And you get that right. <laughs> Of course. I was just trying to come up with them on, on the spot. <laughs> Man, when you sent us those bumper sticker ideas, I was like, that was one of my goals in life is to get those actually on a car. <laughs> but oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Anyhow, uh, Bob, how are you doing today? I'm good. Yeah. It's so exciting to have Dan here. I will add a little bit of an introduction to what you said uh, just to give listeners a little bit more of a view of who dan is and oh i don't know i think the bumper stickers really are gonna speak for themselves there bob (laughs) you know dan is a titan in the bumper sticker industry but that's only a small fraction of how he spends his time uh dan is um you know actually just a prolific musician and has you know background in classical guitar, but also, um, you know, part of some great jam sessions. And yeah, we all admire Dan for his guitar skills. Dan taught me how to play bass a little bit as well about 10 years ago. 
And then Dan's also a really amazing writer. He, uh, you know, has a MFA in writing and from Naropa. And that's one reason we're going to bring, we have him on the show today. And I'll introduce the show in a little bit, but just wanted to give a little bit more and ask you, Dan, how how is your day going and where are you right now um, in the world? Uh, thanks, Bob. Um, that was really, really nice of you to say all that. Um, my day is going, um, it's going well. I was excited to talk to you all today. You, you have um, rejuvenated some, um, some of my passions and uh, I've been doing some, uh, I've been diving into some of my old work and some of the uh, uh, poetry that has always moved me, but I maybe haven't revisited recently. And it feels especially nice to be revisiting it now during the pandemic um, and the state of the world. And uh, a reminder of how uh, powerful and important poetry is at this, at this moment, as well as music too. I've been playing a lot of music. Um, I am actually um, uh, broadcasting. Is that is that what it's called? Podcasting, broadcasting. Is I don't know the technical differences. Uh, uh, I think we call it narrow casting. At least what we do here is the it's the narrow street. Oh, the narrow street. Okay. Yeah. Right. Something about uh, uh, don't narrow cast podcast. Put it on a bumper sticker. Um, <laughs> I'm uh, <laughs> the man at work. Yeah. So I'm actually um, in between uh, Golden, uh, where I live uh, in in the in the canyon, a canyon outside of Golden, and uh, Fort Collins, uh, where Dave is. Uh, I'm in between in uh, South Boulder proper and uh, utilizing a reliable internet connection to make sure this all goes smoothly. Oh yes, I love when we get. Some podcasting coming out of good old Boulder, Colorado. Thank you so much, Dan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Man, that's great. Well, um, say hi to your folks for us. I'm assuming you're at your parents' place. That is correct. Nice. That's great. They'll have they're gonna love this episode. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. Has your um has the the cold been biting you up in the canyon lands, Danny? Um, in, in a, in a sense, we, we live on the side of the Canyon that is, um, completely shaded for about six months of the year. This was not known to us when, uh, we moved in, in the early summer. I think it was mentioned in passing. I didn't take real note of it. And now I'm, I'm noticing it because you have one side of the Canyon that is, um, up until, well, last night we got a dusting of snow up there, but, uh, before that, the side of the canyon was completely uh, clear and sunny, and then you see our side in our house, and we're covered in snow that's been hanging around for weeks now. Um, mm. But it's a beautiful sight still. You know, you can't beat a, a, a snowy uh, canyon wall. You know, as far as the beautiful evergreens popping out of that that white snow, it's it's beautiful. Mm. Dan, you just painted a nice picture there. I remember when you and I went hiking in the Rockies and we were actually looking for a podcast standby Mike Bishop. 
and we got <laughs> turned back because the the river uh, blew out a bridge, and so we we never found Bish. But don't worry, he he yeah. he, he made an appearance on the podcast, so he was all right. But <laughs> that you just reminded me of that image. Yes, totally. I think of that. I think of that um, hike very fondly, even though it was like we didn't necessarily achieve the goal. Um, but you know, we let go of that, and uh, I think learned a lot. And then on another, I'm also thinking of a snowy hike that we maybe did do with Bish, um, and uh, I was introduced to the term post holing for the first time. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Dad, could you uh, tell our listeners what what it means to post hole? Yes. So, <laughs> post holing. I'll, I'll paint a quick picture for you. A quick story. Um, we start. We show up at this trailhead. Um, what was it outside of like a Grand Lake? Maybe. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, and um, we show up there in uh, shorts and t-shirts um, <laughs> in full sun. <laughs> Uh, with um, snowshoes strapped to the back of our packs, which in itself is a little bit of a paradox. And we start on this hike and we're passing all these people that, um, whether they said something or not, I know they were quietly judging us for having snowshoes on a hot, sunny day. Um, But as we got deeper and deeper into the canyon, some snow started to appear and uh, we started to get some reports from the hikers that had made it all the way to the end. And uh, they started talking to us about how, um, how well prepared we were with our snowshoes because uh, the last mile or two is nothing but post-holing. <laughs> and post-holing <laughs> is, is like kind of a, a nature's trickery as you start to, you can start to walk, you start to hit snow and then you start to walk over the snow and uh, you're feeling okay about it, and suddenly uh, the ground falls out from under you, and you sink three feet down past your knees, and uh, you're stuck in there like quicksand. Um, that's the classic post hole, which is why you got the snowshoes. <laughs> uh, great story, Dan. <laughs> that's a hashtag lone eagle. Yes, hashtag lone eagle. Yeah. And uh, I don't think we have time for this, but Dan wrote a song about one of our hiking mates that maybe we'll go into next week, but we'll just leave it there for now because <laughs> I know we got some content to get into, but uh, yeah. Wow, cliffhangers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Ooh. I could introduce the show and then Dave, you can uh, like focus us in on what we're going to do today. So the, oh boy, I don't want to be the focus guy. You're the focus, right. Dave, you're the focusman. Dave focusman this week. Yeah. Uh, all right. I'll focus us in. So the overall topic for today, having Dan on the show, is poetic activism. And Dan is someone that already said, just a very skilled and uh, complex writer. And poetry is so important to his work. He's, he's actually read some of his poetry at uh, the Peachtree Wedding, I believe. So um, that's pretty awesome. And Dan is also a longtime activist and, you know, holds these values that are consistent with thriving around, you know, revolutionary change and liberation and um, has studied 
poetry and history. So we thought, yeah, what is, what is the role of poetry in activism? What is the role of poetry in social change, um, you know, at the micro and the macro levels? So we thought Dan Kantrick, the best, best person to bring in um, on this topic. I'll, I'll pass it over to you, Dave. Yeah. So as I focus, we might walk down this path of a road less traveled, as it were. Just can there will be no more Robert Frost references. Um, yeah, we don't really know where we're going to get to today. That's for sure. And just like the content that is out there is that we could push down towards it feels like it's going to be immense. So as per usual, we ask someone on the show and it's like, yeah, it'll just be like a quick 30 minute thing or whatever. And then we're already planning next week's episode and already got a soft, soft commit from Dan to come back because we feel like we're just going to get down all kinds of paths. But I think where we really want to start this week is sort of walking the history path and um, thinking about you know, unions and the wobblies and anarchists out in Spain in the 1930s. And we'll see if we can walk all the way down to, you know, Edward Abbey and eco poetry and push back past into modern day, but we don't know how far we're going to get. And I think, Danny, where we really want to start is asking you the question. What moves you? And specifically, what moves you in literature? What moves you in poetry? What, what, where does the prose take you? And see where that gets us going. You know, for me, uh, and I, I always wonder if this is um, because of my background in music, um, but I notice um, in, in both prose and poetry, the what what gets me right away is the the sounds the rhythms the um the word choice the language how how the word um spills off of the tongue i um very much love going to poetry readings and really experiencing um the performative aspect of poetry um uh, and how people deliver the the rhythms of their words and that's the first thing that i go to in a work it's like instantly the language over even thinking about the meaning of the poem or whatever. I'm listening to the, the musicality of it and the words. Um, you know, I love uh, combinations of, of words together that sound that are new, have a new sound to me. And that's, I, that's what initially uh, drew me to poetry and what I fell in love with and then moved more to like cross genre work that is uh, prose and poetry um, together and breaking the conventions of these two things being separate. Yeah, that's what really drew me to that. And actually, um, Claudia Rankine, a well-known and uh, very well-regarded uh, poet and essayist and playwright, uh, editor, um, just a prolific writer who um, most re- recently is quite known for her um, her book of poetry, Citizen. Um, an American lyric, which was award-winning and I think transformative on so many levels for all kinds of people that study poetry or, or were able to um, encounter this work. And she was recently interviewed in the New York Times Book Review a couple of weeks ago. And um, I think for a, a while, I, I ha- I've definitely had the idea of sound in my head as the factor that draws me to um, poetry and literature and 
uh, as the, the first thing that brings me in. Um, but she was asked a similar question and, um, you know, she summarized it very briefly and clearly. And it, it, when she said it, it struck me. And, um, she, she basically said she's held by the, the beauty of the language first and foremost, as opposed to simply being carried along by the plot. And that, that's, Hmm. that's in a nutshell, what does it for me? Um, that's, that's how I get drawn into a work. Yeah, I really like that too. I also feel like inadvertently the question has this idea of when you think of movement, it feels like a almost a visceral and like a physical response. And I know that, you know, it could be a, a many, many different things, but the musicality of like when you think about rhythm and motion coming together, you think about dance. And I love that idea of pushing those two genres together because I feel like that answer feels real to me. I don't know if that's where my head would go personally, but I like, I really like that feeling that it evokes, you know? Yeah, I love it too. Yeah. And I, yeah, yeah, you, you refocused me, Dan. You re, you tilted my head and I, I, yeah, I, I so often go to content. So what you said, gives me a step back and I, I, I really appreciated what you just said. And, um, I'm curious to explore the relationship of what you said, the plot to like lyricality or lyrics, um, as we move forward in, in what we, we look at today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, so many times I've, uh, encountered a work and I couldn't even tell you what it was about on when, on the first read, but I was I was I was in I was drawn to it. It was, I, you know, I needed to hear it again and again. So just the sound itself has an emotional impact, you know, and it has there's there's meaning there. And like I I often I like what you said about dance and and the body and thinking about how this, yeah, like what's what's happening in the body when I hear when I hear um, a poem or when I read a poem, what's, uh, you know, connecting to the somatic and, you know, feeling through all of that. Cause instantly something happens before I know what's, what the poem is about or what it's trying to achieve. You know, there's like a reaction and uh, that's what I'm really interested in and drawn to. Yeah. Well, I feel like this is a beautiful opener for where we want to go to next and thinking about the wobblies. Um, I, I was first introduced to the IWW um, through our time at Left Hand Books, and which is a defunct socialist, anarchist, Marxist bookstore based out of Boulder, Colorado. And I feel like through Left Hand Books, we were we found our way to the People's History, which is Howard Zinn's book, of course, and. He has like a, a long section on the Wobblies because Zinn is such a union guy and sort of the work that they pushed through in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And yeah, Dan, just in briefly before the show, you were talking a little bit about how that poetry and that music and blends with that activism. And I'm just kind of want to hear some of your thoughts and how you want to open that up a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I think with the Wobblies, the first 
I think my first introduction to them was uh, through somebody telling me about their songs and how there's this uh, such this um, strength of camaraderie and uh, togetherness in community uh, through song um, that these these um, amazing organizers developed and uh, they actually came out with um, a a collection of their songs, a songbook. It's called the Little Red Songbook. Um, I think it initially came out in like 1909, and um, there's been all kinds of editions since then, published um, through I think the even to the mid to late 90s. And what I think is so cool about that is it's like these this these moments of you know music has the the ability to lift your spirits, and so when you're lifting spirits. And you're combining that with, um, you know, these very crucial, heavy topics about workers' rights and um, the struggle to, uh, you know, take down the establishment or feel represented or feel feel strong and feel worthy um, that so much of their work did on an international level. It's like they could use songs as a way to spread their message. And what a what a way to do that. What a way to, what a way to spread your message through, through songs that just carry all over. Um, and people can, people can learn a song. And now, now here we are again, back to the sound. You can learn a melody and be drawn to a melody without even knowing what the lyrics are. But suddenly you realize you're singing a song about union rights and what, you know, what, what does that mean to you? And, um, so yeah, I think, um, that's what I loved about the the Wobblies and my first introduction to them was through song. And I think there's such a connection between song and poetry and uh, activist poetry and activist songs um, by the Wobblies. And, and they're also their, their um, unwaverable dedication to each other, the way they stuck together, you know, even in times of, you know, actually being slaughtered and, taken down by police, just finding strength in each other and fighting through so that, you know, which eventually leads to all kinds of things and the rights that we have today as workers, the 40 hour work week, you know, you know, getting disability or, uh, being protected when you have an injury on the job, um, all kinds of ways that workers were exploited at work was handled through this labor movement. And, uh, the spirit of the wobblies, I think is such a, uh, such a strong part of the history of the labor movement. Dan, I wonder if you had a song that you could share for us or maybe not until next week. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I'll just randomly f- uh, flip through the songbook and find one. I have it up here and I can just, unfortunately, I probably don't know the tune. I would need uh, my guitar. I'm not going to sight sing, but I can um, recite some lyrics if you'd like. I'd love that. Yes. That sounds awesome. Okay. So this, um, and you know, I just opened the book flip to this one, uh, the words for this song and so many were early on, uh, attributed to Joe Hill, who seemed to be a prolific wobbly and a, uh, prolific songwriter. And this, um, this is called Mr. Block. And it first appeared in the 1913 edition of the little red book um and maybe i'll just read the first verse in the chorus which goes 
please give me your attention and I'll introduce to you a man that is a credit to our red, white, and blue. His head is made of lumber and solid as a rock. He is a common worker and his name is Mr. Block. In Block, he thinks he may be president someday. Oh, Mr. Block, you were born by mistake. You take the cake. You make me ache. Tie a rock on your block and then jump in the blue lake. Kindly do that for liberty's sake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty good. Boy, I I guess I want to say that I feel like there anyone that has been out on the streets probably has those moments of when you hear that that voice of that song whatever that song might be i mean there's so much chanting but when you hear a song when you're protesting it feels like a special moment and i feel like there's just not enough of that these days um and i i want more of that and i just know that like one of the i remember we were i don't remember exactly where we were, but we were at some jail and this one woman just started singing, um, like we shall not be moved, I believe. And that was, yeah, it was a powerful moment. So I feel like the wobblies were really onto something by bringing that, that movement and that song and that, the emotional tone to activism, which is just like so crucial. Maybe I can, I have a, a list of famous wobblies. Oh, yeah. And I'll just mention a few of them. So you had Joe Hill and Big Bill Haywood. We also <laughs> have Pete Seeger, mm. Eugene Debs, Noam Chomsky, Dorothy Day, Tom Morello. And last but not least, Helen Keller. Nice. Wow. Pretty pretty good list, huh? Yeah. That basically sums it up. What do you guys think happened to the unions? Why do you feel like I was one of the, you know, I'm a union man. I'm a part of the, um, the Educators Alliance. I believe the PEA is what my union's called. It's just teachers union in my school district. But I feel like they're they're just not they just don't have the sway that they used to have, huh? I think uh, I think Ronald Reagan had a part in that. I actually just watched a, a recent documentary about him, and they they noted uh, the death of the unions to um, the uh, I think it was a strike by the airport. What's that airport controllers union or airport workers strike? And yeah. it was such a it was such a critical moment when you have the president of the United States stepping in and uh, telling these people if they don't go back to work, they're all going to lose their jobs, as if he had a, a say in it, as if he had the power to you know take their jobs away. And that's such a that's such a, a threatening point when you know I think the president is coming to your job and firing you, not just your boss. Um, or your supervisor. Right. Uh, I know that he, uh, I know that that's, that's, that was a watershed moment, all of Reagan's presidency and in, in fighting off the unions and uh, rewarding the corporations as we see 
continue today. Um, yeah, it's it's sad. And I yeah. don't mean to presuppose that, that unions like a, are totally dead. Right. Yeah, totally. But I do know that there, the power is not what it once was. And I think a lot of that, yeah, has to do with the union busting and the corporations and the just the intentionality of breaking these unions, you know? So, but you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, why don't we um, transition to the next set of um, poems? I think it stays on that sort of anarchist line. Is that right, Dan? The Spanish Civil War? Yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I gathered um, some poems from uh, the Spanish Civil War um, that to me, and maybe I, I'd like to hear your both of your views on the Spanish Civil War, but it it it, it immediately stands out to me as this, you know, dis, despite the uh, horrendous acts of the Franco regime and uh, you know all the horrible things he carried out, there's still a part of me as an anarchist that looks at the Spanish Civil War time period and the movements happening in Spain during that time to fight back as this like amazing time for the anarchist movement and organizing and strength and solidarity um, and what they were able to do. I'm curious, which is what the two of you think about when you hear the Spanish civil war, like what, because my mind immediately goes to uh, anarchist movement when I hear Spanish civil war. Curious about two of you. Yeah, me too. My mind goes to George Orwell and his book, homage to Catalonia. And I think Dave and I read that on a road trip together. We read it out loud and Orwell's awesome. His journalism's fantastic and, you know, political journalism. Descriptions of like the anarchists in Barcelona and they're organizing within the cities, like the anarcho-syndicalist like unions in the cities, co-op, you know, worker-owned cooperatives. And then also... In the rural areas, we're also like anarchist um, oriented. So they, ha- I think it's for me like the most powerful and or like empowered and impressive network of anarchist organizing. And like they took on two fronts: they took on the fascists, and then they took on the communists who sold them out. Um, and I think the nationalists as well, like the previous. So that maybe three fronts and they were able to fight for a long time, but it was too much. And there was too much international like money flowing into those other fronts. But it, yeah, I do think it was like a, a glorious uh, moment for anarchism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it seems like through that battle, there was like so many like real successes of like, the, the country operate like I feel like you have these moments of like little pieces of anarchists um, like communities popping up but I feel like at in the in like the late 30s it was this like moment where a whole country was like running through like an anarchist fashion and it was yeah I 
it was an interesting experiment, and I agree that the outside world pushed too hard in so many ways. And but it was also kind of like at the edge of so many different things, right? Like you, you mentioned, like you know, fascism and communism, and re, like the Republicans, and like how that is all pushing together, and like through that you get this like burst of creativity, right? And a lot of these like famous like artists and authors like Barcelona was like a hub of this creative energy. And it's interesting too, because from that it gets like totally shut down. Right. And like, you get this like 40 year period of like drabness in Spain, which is a funny thing to think about, but like, you know, you, it's not until like the seventies and eighties when like it explodes again into this like extreme, like post dictatorship, um and where you get like Almodovar coming out of that but anyways yeah so i feel like it's this like moment in time where there's this like creative explosion and i i think that that is a pretty wonderful scene to set for some of the the activism and poetry that comes out of that it's like this war but it's also this like war for the mind and for the emotion for the philosophy for the heart of the country that um yeah where it's all being fought on so many different battlefronts you know yeah so uh, when i'm thinking about the the poetry that came out of this this time period and i'm thinking like uh mostly like the early 1930s and uh through the um through the rest of that decade is is the work that i was looking at i have a, a few different poets and definitely a main theme between all of them is um exile and what that does to your identity um they all had to flee spain and move to different countries um you know paris or mexico and all over because their work was it was it was that threatening to um the fascist regime and to be uprooted um and have this like your sense of place turned upside down and really just taken away from you. Um, it's like a death for these, these writers. And you'll hear through some of the work that, that it really is, it becomes this, the, the language that's used is um, really um, heavy. It weighs really heavy on the heart. It's very vulnerable. And um, I often, when I'm reading some of the works, I'm wondering, is this, is this a, love poem to a former partner or lover or is the partner and lover spain so i brought in i i I gathered some poems that you know have to do with that um as well as some inspiring ones about movements and i want to read you uh, along that line i want to read you this poem um by uh maria and ciso and i apologize for my Spanish pronunciation. It's not very good. Uh, Dave, feel free to uh, chime in and Bobby for for the fact uh, of the matter. Um, Sehr gut, danke. Danke, Dan. (laughs) Danke. Bitte. Bitte. Um, (laughs) So yeah, she. I'll I'll give you a little by a quick bio of her um, and then I want to read you a poem um, that she wrote and I, I will say the poem is my translation of the work um and i approached the translation my approach to the translation was done as 
like step one was a completely literal translation um, and thinking about the rules of grammar in Spanish and and really trying to figure out the literal meaning of the poem. And from there, I just make slight um, tweaks to make it, um, I guess, to make the poem, to to make the work uh, flow like a poem, because sometimes, you know, a direct translation uh, doesn't actually come out poetically. And if you're thinking about when, when you write a poem, I mean, just think about writing a poem in English and then asking somebody to translate that and how many different ways it could be done. And, uh, you know, how many different ways, like the, a metaphor of a rose, you know, if you're just trying to translate that as a rose, is that, is that good enough? Or is it representing something else and you should translate it to what it's representing? There's so many questions involved in translation and by no means, um, do I have an extensive long history in translation and I'm not uh, super well practiced, um, but this was basically an exercise um, that I think is beneficial and I think it's an entryway into this work. So if you hear something that um, you really like, you can go explore it further and uh, get into it because there's so much amazing work that happened around this time. So uh, this first poet is uh, Maria Enciso. Um, and she lived from 1908 to 1949. Um, she was a poet, journalist, and teacher. She began uh, teacher training at age 15. Um, and then in 1923, she moved to Barcelona and became involved with the student resistance movements at Rios Rosas, um, which there were student residencies there, uh, residences there, and there was a lot, um, a lot of activity going on. Um, she signed um, a, a very important manifesto, um, La Asociación de Amigos de la Union uh, Sovietica. Again, apologies. <laughs> um, and she was um, part of two um, major unions at the time and uh, helped with the work of women's rights in the uh, uh, CNT and the National um, uh, workers uh, union that was so prominent in Barcelona at the time. Um, eventually, when the war broke out, um, she was acting as a delegate for the Republic, uh, and she was helping children flee to Belgium for safety. Um, eventually, um, Hitler invaded Europe, and um, she was no longer able to um, help these children flee to uh, Belgium and um, even France and England is where she was helping people get to. Um, so she eventually just had to leave and uh, she moved to Colombia where she sought exile um, and then eventually moved to Cuba to work as a journalist and um, finally died in Mexico. So she was all over um, and she never got a return to Spain. Um, so Knowing that, I think it's, I think that's important context for this poem. So it's called, um, You Hurt Me, Spain. You hurt me, Spain, wounded me. This fervent torture I wear, your clear footprint, pristine, exact. My traces nailed to your gritty shore, hands open on harsh terrain, blood to blood, diluted agony in eye raw on your splayed cross what a 
what comes up for you, the two of you. Yeah, let me let me get after that. Just I am blown away by the idea that this woman's life that she was in teacher training at 15 first of all that is just mind-boggling to me what 15 year old is ready to teach and then to exile i'm assuming in the 30s and then spend the last 10 years in three different countries and this is in the 40s right so she's in colombia mexico and then dies in mexico at age is that was it 32 no 42 which feels so young. And I feel like it's a life that, I don't know. Yeah, like you said, Danny, I feel like this idea of these words that push out, right? So like what's sticking with me from the poem is blood to blood. And yeah, what that evokes to me, it's like blood is where you're from. It's your link to your heritage and to your past, but it's also this lifeblood. So, yeah, it, even though it was such a short snippet, it really feels like it spoke just in these beautiful little moments and these beautiful little words. So, yeah, that's what comes up for me. Yeah, for me, Dan, I would say, yeah, that blood idea and what you said before about whether these poets are writing for a lover or for writing for Spain is so interesting. And like uh, these anarchists are fighting for a new Spain or like a Spain of their dreams and visions and you know, in the end they lost and Spain was like an awful, awful place under Franco. And, you know, Spain also has like a really awful history of colonization. Um, but that these anarchists were fighting, you know, it's like, yeah, maybe there was a possibility and still is a possibility for, a an anarchist Spain. And that reminds me of the U S like, you know, like, is there anything worth saving about the U S? Um, well, yeah, there's a history of struggle there's the wobblies, there's, you know, movements against racism and sexism. So yeah, it brings up that question for me in our context. And I think I'm always wrestling with that question. So loved it, Dan, loved it. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking about the same thing, Bob. It's like trying to think about that in our current climax, our cli- well, climate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think you had it right with climax. <laughs> our current climax um, because this is the climax of the podcast everybody we've reached it um, <laughs> no but um, to think about yeah the current climate like always trying to connect it back to that and what we're going through right now and you know hearing people speak about like oh you know if if this person gets elected I'm moving to Canada like I'm fleeing the US and thinking about like the amount of times I reject a uh, patriotism for this country or um, feeling proud to be from this country or something. And then thinking about like, I have the choice to be here. I have the choice to come and go. I have the choice to um, openly have that thought and speak it aloud. And, you know, this person is, is such an early age is dedicating their life to their community and giving so much to their community. And then they're 
they're forced to leave and they can never come back. And, um, it's, yeah, that's just, it, it's tragic. It's devastating. Um, and it's, you feel this by these words, you think about the struggles that we're going through today. Um, and, and you wonder how can I connect that? How can I, how can I tap into that, um, emotion and feel that for myself, um, in today's climate? Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Well, that seems like a perfect place to leave it for the, for the ep. And we have so much more to go into, but we are coming to that, that time. Um, Dave, does that seem like where we're at or how are you feeling? Oh yeah, Bob. Love it. I'm ready, ready to get, get my did you know on. Did you know? Dave, sing us in, would you? Hey, hey, did you know? 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 Well, it's my week for the did you know. And so I have like sort of a three did you knows. Well, today is December 13th when we're recording. So by the time this is published, what I'm talking about will have already passed. However, tomorrow, the 14th, is Elector's Day. And so did you know that tomorrow is the day that the electors vote for the president? But even more importantly is, did you know that yours truly and Dan Kantrick uh, participated in our own form of activism four years ago on Elector's Day? And in Denver, Colorado, we tried to persuade the electors to become faithless electors in order to try to spark a movement um, across the electors to not vote for uh, the orange menace. And so the final did you know is, did you know that there were seven faithless electors last election across different states? None in Colorado. We were not successful. Um, and maybe the final, did you know, is, did you know that the Supreme court made that unconstitutional? So that, uh, electors cannot go faithless this time around. So I'm going to end it there. Good info, Bob. Well, I'm going to hit you up with the way to get after thriving in dystopia. And it's always writing me at DavePeachTree at gmail.com. You can also try me at DaveFocusman at gmail.com. You can hit us up on our website, Thriving in Dystopia. Follow Bob at bmaze19 on Twitter or the Instagram, Thriving underscore in underscore dystopia. And want to thank Dan for being here this week. But, you know, it's not over yet, Danny. Sounds like, sounds like we got you coming back for more. And I am certainly looking forward to it. So grateful, Dan. Thank you so much. Yes. Much love to the two of you. Um, I appreciated this conversation so much, and I appreciate all the work you do to help us thrive in these times. Thanks, Danny. Love you guys. See you soon. What's up, Driving Crew? Bob and Dave want to take a second to thank you for lending them your ears. They also want to thank the artists for making everything a little more beautiful. The intro song is In Heaven by Drake Stafford. Our audio is edited by the consummate and dexterous Nadir Chayetch. Web design by Chris the Mixer Sawyer. And of course, visual art is by the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine. 
And finally, our new Asha song is a cover of Can't Help Falling in Love by our editor, Nadir. See you next week. Yeah.